Oh. Welcome to Aaron's Oil Orama. Yay! We put the bright in capridium. Okay, I'm still working on that slogan, but it's going to get there, right? So I'm glad you all came on a Sunday. A lot more people this Sunday than usual. Thank you for coming to our store. We make the best oil in all of Capernaum. Uh, oh, I see uh, cousin Sophie, Kaylee, and Grayson. Oh, make sure you check out the Zoom rack. There's specials back there, okay? Great specials today. Check out the oil. Oh, what's that? I see the Donkey Express on Sunday. Donkey Express. Well, what is this? They normally don't deliver letters on Sundays, especially after the Feast of the Tabernacles. I wonder what it's from. Oh, my. It's a letter from Cousin Jerry. Wow. Oh, before we open the doors, do you mind if I read a letter from Cousin Jerry? Okay. It says, Dear Cousin Aaron, I hope Aunt Anna is feeling better. Aunt Anna, are you feeling better? Oh, she's over there. Okay, feeling better. Please give her a big hug for me. I delivered all your oil without a problem this year. The oil really lit up the festival of the tabernacle this year. But it wasn't as nearly as bright as when Jesus said at the end of the festival. Jesus said that he is the light of the world. Whoa! And that he will show us the way to God. Huh. That's amazing. And all he needed to do was follow him. That message is still burning bright in my heart. That's amazing stuff. While I had been really thinking about how Jesus is the bread of life and the light of the world, something new happened. Wow. I love the Donkey Express. After the festival, I heard that I heard about Jesus healing a blind man. Wow. The man was blind from birth. So it was definitely a, definitely a miracle. Jesus anointed the man's eye with mud and told him to wash in the pool of Shalom. After the man did as Jesus asked, the man could see again. His parents were so shocked. But it got stranger when the Pharisees heard of what happened. They didn't praise God and celebrate the miracle. Instead, they didn't believe the blind man, and they got mad at Jesus for healing on the Sabbath. Wow, those Pharisees. Since the Pharisees didn't believe Jesus told them this story. Wow, let's hear what Jesus said. He said, What I'm about to tell you is true. I am like a gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep have not listened to them. I'm like a gate. Anyone who enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out, and they will find plenty of food. A thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. 
I have come so they, they may have life. I want them to have it in the fullest possible way. Wow. That is a very, very complicated story. I wonder what that means. Oh, this is what Jerry says. So how amazing is it for Jesus to say he is the gate? He said the gate leads to safety. Jesus will protect us and lead us on the safe path home. The gate will also let us go in and out. Jesus will be our freedom. Wow. We can really be free from everything that holds us down. A gate with plenty of food? Can it be true that Jesus will be our abundance? With Jesus, there will always be enough, just like the Garden of Eden. Considering how the Pharisees didn't heal the blind man, and even when he was healed, the Pharisees rejected him, it makes Jesus' words even more powerful. I never raised sheep, so I might be missing more from Jesus' story, but this is what I understood. Perhaps you can ask Cousin David when he thinks about it, since he's a shepherd. I think Cousin David can explain the story better for us. So I'll check out with Cousin David. Cousin Aaron, as I hear more about who Jesus is, I will continue to share it with you. I feel like this good news needs to be shared so that we can all consider whether to follow Jesus or not. To follow Jesus. Jesus, the bread of life. Jesus, the light of the world. Jesus, the gate. Give my love to the entire family. Hope to see you soon. Love, Cousin Jerry. Wow, Jesus sounds amazing. Will you follow him too? I'm going to think about myself. Well, you know what my grandmother say, when you need to go somewhere through a gate, you got to pray. So <laughs> open them, shut them. Oh God, you are the gate. Open them, shut them. Help us walk through with faith. Open them, shut them. Give your hands a clap. Open them, shut them. I fold in your lap. Let's pray. Dear God, you are showing us more and more who Jesus is. Jesus, the bread of life. Jesus, the light of the world. And Jesus, the gate today. We pray that you will continue to show us more of you so that we may follow you to the fullest. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, all the kids, let's please join me to the classroom. We could have our activities. And the kids at home, please work on your activity sheets. Thank you. Today's scripture reading is 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 to 15. Listen now to the word of the Lord. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, 
Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went and in and told his Lord thus, and spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me now. Let him... Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And, Eli and Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? He, has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God and he and all his company. He came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all earth but in Israel, so accept now a present from your servant. This is the word of the Lord. One of the few people I'm taller than. The Lord be with you. Thank you. Uh, please pray with me. Lord, we thank you uh, for your word this morning. And now in the hearing of your word, help us to be encouraged, to challenged, to be filled with your spirit. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. Amen. Today's story of Naaman's healing and salvation follows the miracle story from last week in which Elisha used the unexpected gift of first fruits to feed a hundred men and even had leftovers according to the word of the Lord. As you just heard, Naaman is a popular, powerful commander of the Syrian army and as such, he's greatly feared by the people of Israel. 
according to some Jewish legends, it was his arrow that killed the notoriously evil king Ahab during battle. Naaman is well positioned politically and appropriately praised for his military prowess. But he also has a problem. He's a leper or he has leprosy. Now this is not what we know today as Hansen's disease, something that is caused by a bacterium that was discovered in the late 19th century. Leprosy in the Old Testament is a generic term used to cover a host of skin blemishes and swellings, in particular skin that has turned scaly or white. Scholars today think it would have included things like psoriasis, eczema, leukoderma. I think if you had a really bad case of acne, you would have qualified and you would have been temporarily quarantined for leprosy. I know that had I lived back then, I would definitely have been called a leopard or identified as one for my vitiligo. Not only that, but this so-called leprosy could also infect houses and clothing. And so it's not just a skin disease. It included all sorts of what we would probably identify as fungal or mold contaminations. Like the diagnosis of something like HIV in the 1980s, or more recently of COVID in the beginning of the pandemic, everyone would avoid anyone suspected of leprosy. It could lead to all kinds of physical debilitations, but it was preceded by societal dread and social isolation. As its spread was not really understood and feared, many lepers lived lifelong in isolation and they had to cry out, unclean, unclean, whenever they were near other people. It was an important enough of a public health issue in ancient Israel that two entire chapters in Leviticus 13 and 14, 116 verses are devoted to this topic, to its description and rituals for cleansing, isolating, and possibly reintegrating those people and buildings back into their society. Now, Naaman's wealth and his power would certainly blunt some of the social ostracism, and he would have had access to the best available medical care. But it was something that could not be healed, as far as they knew, and it would be a source of constant concern and anxiety and fear for himself and for his family. And so it's not surprising that he's willing to seek out a rumored treatment from an unknown prophet based on the dubious medical claims of a little, little girl. It's a long shot, but he's probably exhausted all available medical conventional interventions, and he's willing to try anything. And so at this point, Naaman does what any of us would do. He thinks he can solve his problems with money and with knowledge and with his power. He calls in a favor and enlists the aid of his king, who writes a letter to the king of Israel, nonsensically commanding him to cure his general, his general who is going to fight against Israel of this leprosy. And the king of Israel, of course, freaks out, thinking that this is some sort of ridiculous uh, pretext to start another war. 
He knows that neither he nor any of his doctors can cure someone of leprosy. And so he thinks like when he fails to cure him, the king of Syria will use that as an excuse. It'll be his weapons of mass destruction to start another war. Fortunately for him, the news of Naaman's arrival and the king's panicky response reaches the ears of Elisha and Elisha sends word, let him come to me now that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. And so Naaman arrives at Elisha's house, displaying all his power, his pride, his sense of entitlement. He shows off his vast wealth, his horses, his chariots, his entourage. He expects to get first-class VIP treatment, and he's brought along gifts and payment, an enormous amount of silver and gold, and rather inappropriately, I think, 10 sets of designer suits for a prophet who lives in the woods. But when he arrives, Elisha doesn't even bother to come out to say hello. He just sends a messenger with a brief message, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. Imagine traveling cross country to see a famous doctor for a radical new treatment. And when you get there, she sends instead a first year medical student to tell you to go home and take two aspirins. It's unclear why Elisha does this. Maybe he's just a prickly prophet and he doesn't want to be bothered. Maybe he has no social graces, no bedside manners. Maybe he's angry that he has to heal his enemy. Maybe he's hoping that Naaman will not follow his instructions and not get healed. Maybe he just wants to humiliate an enemy, humble him. Or maybe he's trying to say something about the way God heals and saves. In any case, Naaman is predictably shocked, furious, humiliated by the slight, and it's actually a little surprising that he doesn't just destroy and burn Elisha's house down. But as he's fuming, his servants reason with him, noting that had the prophet told them to do something extraordinary, had they told him to do something that was really, really hard, he would have done it. And so shouldn't he do something that is so simple and easy? To his credit, or perhaps it's another sign of his desperation, Naaman takes the plunge in the Jordan River seven times and he's healed of his disease. And in his healing, he comes to faith and he makes this profession, behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. Let me make three brief reflections with you this morning about Naaman's healing and salvation. The first is this. I think this story tells us and reminds us that healing and salvation is for all. It's for all. In the Old Testament, there is what scholars call the scandal of particularity, that the people of Israel, that the small band of people and only this small group of people were God's elect. In Amos 3, for example, God says, For you only, you only I have known of all the families of the earth. And all other people, all other nations are excluded. The Apostle Paul noted this reality when he reminded the Gentiles in Ephesus 
that they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God. No hope and without God. That's the condition of everyone else other than the small family of Israelites. To many, this seems unfair. And if that were the whole story, we would agree that that is not fair. But that is not the whole story. It is true that God chose one small community. But God's intent was to bless the entire world through that family. When God called Abraham, for example, in Genesis 12, he told him, I will bless those who bless you. I will bless those who bless you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Everyone. And we are given a vision of the fulfillment of that promise in Revelation 7. And after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, from all tribes and people and language, from every nation, from all tribes and people and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Salvation belongs to our God, the God of all people, every nation, every tribe, every language. From the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation, God's intent is to bless and to heal and to save all. In fact, Jesus will bring up this story of Elisha's healing of Naaman in his first sermon in Luke chapter 4. And he said it this way, and there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them, none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. The people who heard this illustration were so outraged that they tried to kill Jesus. It was not a popular national story. Nobody wanted to hear that. The memory of an enemy of Israel being healed infuriated Jesus' listeners just as we might imagine it infuriated those of Elisha's time. It's understandable. We want God to bless and to heal and to save our friends, our allies, our nation, not our enemies, whoever they may be whether it's North Korea or Iran, the Taliban, Boko Haram, or the class bully. We are the good guys. We are the ones deserving, or at least more deserving, of God's healing and salvation than those bad people. But we don't get to choose whom God heals and our enemies are not God's enemies. Why would, give, why would God give victories and healing to a man who serves a king and nation intent on defeating and enslaving the people of Israel, the people of God? That is not an easy question to answer. But his healing and salvation is consistent with God's will and it and it anticipates the even more shocking news 
that whoever believes in Jesus shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That anyone who calls upon the name of Jesus Christ shall be saved. Anyone. The promise of salvation, the good news of the gospel is open to all. To Naaman the Syrian, as well as to you and to me. As Gary Willis wrote in What Jesus Meant, no outcasts were cast far enough in Jesus' world to make him shun them. Not Roman collaborators, not lepers, not prostitutes, not the crazed, not the possessed. Are there people now who could possibly be outside his encompassing love? No, there isn't. The good news is good news for all people. It's good news for you and for me. Secondly, we see here in this story that healing and salvation is made possible not through the strong and the powerful, but through the weak and the powerless. This story involves a decorated military general, two kings, and the most famous wonder worker of his day. But the healing and salvation was only possible because of the servants and the messengers whose names we don't even know. Naaman's healing and salvation begins with an unnamed little, little girl. Not just a little girl, but a little, little girl. An enslaved orphan of war who first mentioned that there is a prophet who could heal Naaman. She compassionately bears witness for God that God is able to heal while the powerful kings are completely unnerved by the thought. Then there are the unnamed messengers who faithfully deliver the message to the king and to Naaman, knowing that delivering such unfavorable news might result in their own mistreatment. And finally, there are the unnamed servants who calmly persuade Naaman to wash in the Jordan when he was about to return home in disgust and rage. And isn't this still true of our healing today? It may be that the surgeon gets all the credit for healing, but it takes a lot of people to make sure that you get well, right? Not just the, the medical and nursing staff, but the unnamed lab technicians, the cleaning crew, the kitchen staff who prepares your meals, the people who made the scalpel and, and, the, and the masks and the surgical gowns, even those who make sure that the AC is working in the hospital room. Everyone, unknown, unnamed. Now, a cynic might say that these servants and messengers had no choice, probably true, that they were driven by a fear of getting the contagion from Naaman, and so they were motivated to try to get him healed, possible. But we see in the scriptures again and again that God's mode of operation is to use the powerless, the small, the marginalized, the weak, to accomplish his purposes. And these unnamed servants and messengers are just another example of that. As the king of Israel acknowledged, even the most powerful kings are helpless when it comes to life and death. And God, and only God, can make alive. All of us know 
or at least I think most of us know by now, those of us who have lived a few years, we know that no privilege, no power, no wealth, not even good habits of eating well and exercising will ultimately protect us or eliminate all health scares. And in the face of death, which we must all ultimately face one day, power and position are ultimately useless. So maybe you feel like you don't have a lot to offer. Maybe you feel like that you don't have many gifts or influence or influential friends. That's fine. You're in a great spot. As the Apostle Paul told the Corinthians, for consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. What this story teaches us is that even if we are weak, no matter how difficult our circumstances, we are still in a position to testify about God. Even a little, little girl whose family was probably killed during a war, who's been captured and enslaved and likely traumatized, she is still able to testify about her faith, about God, the God of Israel. She had no material resources. She had no public platform. The experiences of her life, you would think, would make her doubt the God of Israel. And yet she bore faithful witness to the one person who was willing to listen to her, her mistress. And that made all the difference. You and I can certainly do at least that much and much more. Like the man who brought the first fruits last week, you can begin the process of healing and salvation with a simple word of testimony. On the flip side, I suspect most of us are more like Naaman than the servant girl with power and privilege and problems. It may not be leprosy, but there are things in your life that need healing and that your money and your knowledge and your connections cannot fix. And perhaps the question you might want to ask yourself today is whose small voice am I ignoring? Whose small voice is perhaps that God is trying to speak through to me. I know that for me, that small voice is often the voice of my kids. I'm thankful that as they've gotten older, that they're calling me out more and more when I misspeak or when I misact, which I seem to be doing more lately, at least according to them. You know, it's hard being called out by your kids. Right? Because my first thought is, who are you to tell me? Right? Just this morning, before the service started, I got called out. But I have to humble myself and listen, because they bring a kind of wisdom that I don't have. The third thing I want to say is that this story of healing and salvation comes to us and reminds us that our healing and our salvation results from our humble submission to the Word of God. Healing and salvation come 
in our humble submission to the word of God. How is Naaman ultimately healed and saved? It wasn't because he was strong and powerful. It wasn't because he had friends who had access to all kinds of treatments. It was because he was humble enough or desperate enough perhaps to listen to the wisdom of his servants, to his servants, and choosing to submit himself to the word of the prophet Elisha. Naaman came wanting and expecting the performance of a miracle worker, you know, someone to, to wave his arms, to put on a show. He wanted to be acknowledged as someone important enough and worthy and deserving of special attention. But he learned that in God's eyes, none of that mattered. And that healing and salvation would come only if he was willing to be obedient to the word. I think most of the spiritual life is like that. Sustained, consistent practice of ordinary disciplines and kindnesses is really kind of extraordinary. We are not asked to climb the highest mountains for our salvation. But the regular simple practices of weekly worship, of daily prayers and Bible reading, serving one another. Naaman was fortunate enough to be surrounded by wise and compassionate people who looked out for his interests. And to his credit, he was willing to swallow his pride and obey the word of the prophet despite his initial refusal. His washing in the Jordan is not baptism, but it is a similar act of trusting obedience. And I want you to notice here that Naaman enters the waters with a faith that is equal parts anger and skepticism and a dash of hopeful desperation. His faith is not pure, it's not strong, but it's just enough to obey. And that's the nature of faith. It's never going to be perfect, complete or finished. It doesn't have to be great or large. It just needs to be the size of a sesame seed, just enough to lead to obedience. Naaman's healing and salvation is another reminder that salvation is never about the greatness of your faith as if the strength of your faith will save you. It won't. It's not the greatness of your faith, but the greatness of the one in whom you have placed that faith. I can have all the faith in the world, all the faith in the world of a man who's pretending to be a surgeon, and if I go to him with all the faith in the world, he will probably kill me. Conversely, I might have a lot of, lot of doubts about some world-class surgeon, but despite my many doubts, if I have just enough trust to go under his knife, perhaps under the loving pleading of the people around me, I will more likely be healed. It's not the strength of the faith that I have in the person who is going to save me but it's the strength 
and the faithfulness of the one in whom I am placing that trust. In a moment, we are going to baptize a couple of kids. Josephine's so eager to get baptized. The parents bring their children today in imperfect faith. And all of us, with our imperfect faith, we are going to imperfectly make imperfect promises to care for these kids. But the good news is that God also makes that promise with us. And God is going to keep that promise. You know, I'm so thankful that we all get to participate in the baptism of the youngest members of our family. Because their baptism bears witness to the truth that God's love claims us before we are able to respond in faith and that we do not and cannot and need not come to God in some sort of perfected faith. As small and as impure as our faith may be, it is enough because God is good and God is great all the time and always. And so surrounded by loving faith and the wisdom of all the members of our community, I invite you to keep on taking the plunge into deeper faith and to keep on trusting God for your healing and salvation. Please pray with me. God, we thank you again just for the reminder of the good news that in Jesus Christ, you make salvation for all of us possible. Help us to be humble and to listen to the voices of the weak, the powerless, and the young. And help us to take steps in our imperfect faith, to do what you call us to do in spite of our skepticism, to love our enemies, to give generously, to take up a new ministry, to start the cycle of healing with a word of testimony, and to trust you for our salvation now and for all of eternity. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.